Welcome to the Ray of Hope Church podcast. We believe that hope changes everything, so get ready for an encouraging message from the Word of God. We pray that you would receive wisdom and revelation as you grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 4 of Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul is telling us when the fullness of time was come, and he's talking about grace, and we all need grace. He said, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption, and we might have received the adoptions of sons or daughters too. So he says that when the right time came, God did his work, he sent forth his son. We said last time there were two things in this passage. Number one was time, number two was purpose. And we talked a little bit more about time last time, a little bit more about purpose this time, but the Old Testament is both historical and it is prophetical. So we see the history of the Old Testament. We also see the prophecy of the Old Testament. It has been uh, said many times, there's over 300 prophetical scriptures about the Messiah or the coming Christ. And it's through that prophetical nature that we see the the authenticity of Jesus as Messiah, the Son of God. And much of that prophecy revolves around his birth and his coming. And the events of his birth and the, the things and the people around the birth itself. And let me just give you a couple of verses. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22-23. It says, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying. So here Matthew tells us this is a fulfillment of prophecy. And that prophecy would put the stamp on, this is the right one. This is the one that we're looking for. This one is the one that is uh, authenticated by the fulfillment of prophecy. And he says that, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now he's referring to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And it says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So what Matthew is telling us is that prophecy is being fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Peter writes his epistle, he he brings us up to this uh, conundrum of prophecy. And in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glories that should follow. Now, if I go back and read this with a little Jewish flair here and would kind of tone down the Greek, I might read it this way. Searching what, verse 11, or what manner of time the Spirit of Messiah who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering of Messiah and the glories that would follow. Now what Peter's saying is that the prophets looked at this coming Messiah and they talked about this coming Messiah, but there's some key words here that I think we need to look at. One is the word inquired. The other words are searched and searching. What manner of time, which translates into the when, 
They prophesied, indicating and testifying beforehand, and all this is true. So over a space of hundreds and hundreds of years, the prophet said, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. But it was in partial and part. Not just one said this, that there was many prophets that was testifying this. And they were disjointed not only by time, but also by space. So there would be a generation that would give a prophecy from a prophet, and then generations later, there would be another prophecy of another prophet. Now, one of the reasons this is rather enigmatic to the prophets and troubling to the prophets is because they just got piecemeals of words and truth. Now, one of the reasons I think this is the way it happened is because God did not want the enemy to full well know what he was doing. So in some way, we are privileged to see the backside of the prophetic and not the front side. So the New Testament really verifies and unfolds that Old Testament prophecies. So when you say it seemed troubling to the prophets and even the time where Jesus is born and when he lived, why was it troubling to them? Well, let me just give you a little flavor to this and I think you'll understand it. So when Herod says to the scribes and the Pharisees, where is the Messiah going to be born? They were quick to answer. And they said, in Bethlehem. But the prophet said he would come out of Egypt. And he would be called a Nazarene. So which one is it going to be? Is he going to be born in Bethlehem? Or does he come out of Egypt? Or does he come from Nazareth? And the answer is yes, yes, yes. Now, we can say yes, 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 because we've read the book. But if you are hearing the prophecies, then you say, well, this is kind of troubling because I'm not for sure if he's going to be born in Bethlehem or is he going to come out of Egypt or is he going to be a Nazarene from Nazareth? Of course, we know all the answer is yes. Let me give you another one. Is he the lamb or is he the lion? And the answer is yes, yes. But we're on the flip side of that looking at it. So he, is he the lamb that's slain or is he the lion that's victorious? And we know the answer is both yes. Let me give you another one. Does he come to bring peace? Because the Bible says that he's going to be the prince of peace. Or does he come to bring judgment? The answer again is yes and yes. How can he be the root and the offspring of Jesse and David? How can he become the, the, ones that, the, the one that comes out of Jesse and David, but how can he be the one that produced Jesse and David? That's kind of troubling, isn't it? How many of you are with me on this? Here's another one, Matthew chapter 22, because this is what Jesus himself posed to the scribes and the Pharisees. Beginning at verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, so he's going to ask them a question. What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah, whose son is him? Is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, then how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare to question him anymore. So the, the prophecy can be troubling. 
But we see on the flip side how all of those things are perfectly fulfilled to know that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, is the right one. Because if you look at all this kind of in a panoramic view, then how does that work? Here's some more. If he's the suffering servant, then how can he be the king? If he's to rule an everlasting kingdom, how can he die? How many of you understand what I'm saying here? So when you look at the prophecies like this, then you say, well, one doesn't fit the other, but they do all converge and everyone is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The odds of him fulfilling all 300 prophecies are staggering. I mean, numbers really don't even add up to that. Um, it, it is basically unfathomable that anyone else could fulfill this except Jesus Christ. It really makes us feel good that we have the right one. And it should affirm your faith that you and I are worshiping the one that the Bible talks of. In Micah chapter 4, we begin to have other prophecies, um, beginning at verse 8, then we'll go to Micah chapter 5. It says, And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, this tower of the flock, we mentioned this last time just to kind of uh, uh, get us acquainted with it, is the, the Hebrew word migdal ador, and it's spelled E-D-E-R, but I think it's pronounced ador, and it's called the tower of the flock. The first time that is mentioned, this, this place, is actually in Genesis. Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin, and we're talking about Jacob and Rachel, and when, when Benjamin dies, um, actually Rachel has named him before Jacob arrives. And when he arrives, Rachel's already dead. So the, the midwife, the one who's attending to Rachel, says she's died in childbirth, but she did name the son before she died. And she named the son Benoni, which means the son of my suffering and the son of my sorrow. But when Jacob got there and he looked at that little baby boy, he changed his name immediately. He said, I will not call him the son of suffering or the son of my sorrow. I'll call him Benjamin, son of my right hand. But Rachel dies. And then it says, and they went beyond, a little further beyond this tower, which is the tower of the flock or Migdal Ador. And that is the area where Rachel is buried. And that is why when Herod kills the babies two years and under, it fulfills the prophetic word, says Rachel crying for her children. Because there's huge infanticide that happens in that time of Jesus' birth. Now in Micah 5, verse 2, we have another, another prophetic word to tell where Jesus is going to be born. It says, but you, Bethlehem Ephratah, through you are... Though you are little among the thousands of Judah or through the clans of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So here is another enigmatic prophecy. Number one, one's going to come out from this uh, virgin in Bethlehem, but according to verse uh, number two, he's from everlasting, from everlasting, or he's from old times, and he has no beginning. So these are words that um, really are a little troubling. In Matthew chapter two, if you want to turn to Matthew, we have the account of the wise men. 
Now we know the wise men are coming from the east because they've seen the star. And it says that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now they weren't there at the stable. They weren't there for the birth and they weren't there just right after the birth. It was sometime later because Mary and Joseph and the child is already in the house. Someone said if they were wise women, they would have asked directions and got there sooner. But uh, we don't know if that's true or not. So these wise men have come from the east. They are there looking for the Messiah, one who's been born king of the Jews. We have seen a star in the east. We've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So I want you to just notice these two lines. Not, not only is Herod trouble, but the entire region of Jerusalem is troubled. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus is written by the prophet. So we, we feel like that this uh, coming of the Magi, and that's what they're actually called, it's a prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah 60. So if you'd like to turn there with me, and I'm going to do that right now, I want to see just two verses that very is indicative of what's going to happen here in the birth of Jesus and the time right after that. In verse number three, Isaiah writes, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light. So what are they following? The light of the star. And kings to the brightness of thy rising. Now, if you drop down to verse 6, the multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephrah. All they from Sheba shall come, and they shall bring, now notice this, gold, incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. So it appears that the very gifts that they're to bring in verse 6 are indicative of what the wise men of the Magi bring to baby Jesus. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, because frankincense and myrrh are both incense. They're literally derived from a tree in the Middle East. What they do is they cut the trees, the bark of the tree, and in that cut it exudes, and the tree literally bleeds its resin, and they collect the resin and make the incense out of it, which is really, I think, looking to the wounds upon Jesus and the blood that comes from his body. Now, for some reason, we get three wise men. And I think it's just because there's three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the, the Bible never tells us how many magi there are. And most scholars believe there's not three. I want to read an article, uh, part of an article from Biblical Archaeological Society. This was uh, back on the 3rd of this year in uh, December. It says, Bible scholar Brent Landau refers to an ancient Middle Eastern text that was written in the 8th century. A manuscript indicates that the Magi were a group, not just three, numbering as few as 12, but Middle Eastern traditions favor a number 12 or greater, and some believe even several score, a score consists of 20, so there, there could have been 12, there could have been 20, there could have been 60, there could have been 100, we don't know. Now, the reason I just read this part and I read the, the other part is because the Bible says when they arrived, Herod is troubled. Now, Herod is very powerful. He's ruling all of Palestine. So why is he troubled? Because this huge entourage 
shows up. And these are not just the guys off the street. These are the, the magi. These are the wise men. They come from the east. And continuing with the article, they were the guardians of an age-old prophecy that a star of indescribable brightness would someday appear heralding the birth of God in human form. These magi or wise men may, according to the manuscript, may have come not just from Babylon or Persia, even further to the east as far as India and China. Now, that's a fascinating story, and we don't know how many magi there were, but we do know these people are the ones who would authenticate a king and his kingdom and kingship in the Far East. Now, one of the reasons we feel like that maybe they came is because if it is the region of Babylon, Persia, or even further, there was a person there through about three different kingdoms, the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians by the name of Daniel. And the Bible says that Daniel became the chief magi or the chief counselor in all three kingdoms. He outlived the very kings that he served. We might even say he became the prime minister. So here you have Daniel that has lasted a long time in the Babylonian kingdom. And then when the Medes came along, he's still there. And the Persians come along, he's still there. And so all of these magi or these wise men that are coming up, then they're familiar with the teachings and possibly the writings of this one that that we know. And certainly, he probably, most certainly, Daniel told them about the prophecies of the Messiah that was going to come. So that might have been one of the reasons they came, but the primary reason we think is because there was something astrological that guided them to the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know what that is either. Some say it was a convergence of planets, constellations. Some say it was a phenomenal star. And some say it was the Shekinah glory of God that just appeared, almost like the pillar of fire by night that led them there. But we do know they got there in some way, and it was supernatural. Because these magi were looking, evidently they studied, they they looked at the stars. All the kings wanted their approval, they set them in, 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 in place. And here is a man called Herod that is the king of the Jews, king of the Jews, and he holds the title, but here is this huge entourage that comes up and they're looking for the king of the Jews and it's not him. That's why he's troubled. Because now he has competition. Now, if you've ever studied Herod, Herod was a very wicked, violent man. He killed most of his children, his wives, and at the end of his life, he was very paranoid. He, he was looking for someone to rise up and take his place, and he was always seeing those people, and the way he dealt with it, he just eradicated them. And now, here's another threat. The Magi, the kingmakers. The wise men show up and says, we're looking for the king of the Jews. And Bubba, you're not it. So he's troubled. And all of Jerusalem is troubled with Herod because whenever Herod is troubled, everybody suffers. Everyone suffers. Now, that being said, this uh, title here, and let me give you the Greek word for them. It's the word magos. And in the Hebrew, it's ragmag. And these are the Greek and the Hebrew names for these uh, magi. 
Now, this title is given to them in the Far East, and it's the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians. And, and these are not just wise men who looked at the stars. They are teachers, they're priests, they're physicians, they're astrologers, they're scientists. They're, they're people that have a, a lot of wealth and position. And so when I begin to look at the Hebrew definitions and the words here, it's amazing I found them not just once in the New Testament, I found them also in the Old Testament. Let me give you a couple of places where they're listed. In Jeremiah chapter 39, in verse 3, it talks about the princes of the king of Babylon, they came and sat in the gate. Now most of you know that this is where the people in authority would sit. They would sit in the gate. And these were the rulers, the instructors, they would come together. And it gives names, uh, and, and I'm going to butcher these names, but I'm going to give them to you. When's the last time you pronounced some Persian and that Babylonian names? So names like Nergal, Sharizer, Shamgar, Nebo, Shurikim, Rabbashir, uh, he goes on. But, but their name appears here, and it says they sat with the rest of the princes of the king of Babylon. And then in verse 13, their name appears again with the captain of the guard and all the king's officers of Babylon. So it says the magi are the wise men set with the princes and the rulers of Babylon in the gate. So it gives us kind of an indication. These are just not guys in the, the corner of the kingdom. They're very prominent in the kingdom of these countries. So they're there. They're looking for the king of the Jews. So Herod is troubled. Jerusalem is troubled. So for Herod to defend his position, this is what he did. Now, this is the reason we say that the wise men arrived a little later. is because they're in a house. They come and they present the gifts to Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus. And the Bible says, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Now listen to scripture. Didn't worship them, but worshiped him. So that's very important. Worshiped him and gave him the gifts. And it was revealed to them that they should not go back to Herod, but they should bypass Herod. That was a good move, right? And, and go a different way than they came. And that's when Herod began to kill, and that's why we say it sometime later, because Herod didn't know exactly when the baby was born, how old the baby was, but he had a time frame. And so the time frame is Herod had all the children in this entire region massacred from two years old and under. And that's why Rachel is weeping for her children, because Herod is committing infanticide. Let me give you three things here. It's not in my notes, but I think you need to hear this. Whenever God does something that is on an enormous scale, infanticide takes place. Whenever God got ready to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt, Pharaoh began to kill the babies. Whenever Jesus is born, Herod begins to kill the babies. You know what the next thing that we're looking for right now? The coming of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you what's happening right now? 
we're killing the babies again. Infanticide. So every time a major move of God happens, there's infanticide that happens. Could that be we're getting close to the coming of Jesus Christ? Very interesting, isn't it? So, if you would take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew 1. I want to talk just a little bit tonight about the genealogy of Jesus. And Matthew begins his gospel with that genealogy. If you know anything about the, the gospel of Matthew, Matthew is very concerned and almost laser focused that we know that Jesus is the king. And over and over he talks about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. You can't have a kingdom without a king, and he's trying to tell us through his entire gospel that Jesus is the king. How many of you know he's the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords? So when he begins, verse 1, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, and so we go on, and he divides this up into three 14 uh, heirs, if you will, or uh, progenitors of Jesus. So he takes first the patriarchs, then the kings and the royalty, and then from the Babylonian captivity all the way up to Jesus. So you can see that in the scripture. Now, if you'll go back to verse 3, then we want to see something here that uh, maybe you've never seen before, and um, I just want to bring some things out because I think you need to know it. It says, Judah beget Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So Matthew wants us to know that this is not just name to name. He gives us a little indication here. So if we go to verse 17... So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations from David to captivity in Babylon, 14 generations from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. But he makes mention in verse 3 about Judah. Now we know that the Messiah is going to come through the line of Judah, don't we? But something spectacular happens in Genesis chapter 38. And here's what happens. Judah marries... And he has sons. He has the first one, Er, E-R, Er. The other one is Onan, O-N-A-N. And the other one is named Shelah, S-H-E-L-A-H. So Judah's wife dies. Er marries Tamar. But he is so wicked, God kills him. I don't know what he did, but he was so wicked, God killed him. But yet he has no seed, he has no sons, no children. But we know that the Messiah is going to come through the line of who? Judah. So no, no grandchildren. So the, the custom and the law was, and, and the law hadn't been given yet, but this would still be the law, that the brother would marry the, the, uh, the one who died's wife. So now Onan marries Tamar to raise up seed to continue the bloodline in the family. And this is very graphic, so I'm not going to tell you the details, but Onan refuses to have 
his seed into Tamar to bring the bloodline on. Now we have a problem, and we have a pretty big problem. Because if the bloodline for the Messiah is going to come through Judah, some way we got to get some children from this bloodline. So Er dies, and when Onan refuses to bring children through Tamar, God kills him. I mean, you know, God's serious about we're going to have a Messiah here. There's going to be a son of God here. And whatever I have to do to get this done, this is what we're going to do. And so now Onan dies. But there is a very young son of, uh, of Judah named Shelah, but he's not old enough to marry. So this is what Judah tells Tamar. Whenever my son gets old enough to marry you, then you just stay as a widow, stay in your father's house, and when my son gets old enough, I will give him to you to bring forth seed or the, the bloodline through my, my genealogy. But when he got old enough, Judah didn't do that. And Tamar knew it. And she said, there's not going to be any bloodline. There's not going to be children born of this. Will the bloodline of Judah stop? And so this is what she did. Very fascinating story. She took her widowhood clothes off and put on different clothes and put a veil on. And she parked herself at a certain place by the road. Now understand that Judah's wife has died. And when he goes by this woman who has a veil on, he thinks that she's a prostitute. And he contracts with her to have, if you will, a liaison. Is that right? Can you say that in church? Okay. So she asks tokens because he said, I will pay you. I don't know if you ever watched Popeye, but Wimpy always said, I will pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Some of you don't have a clue what I just said, but anyway. So, so that's the arrangement. I'll pay you later. But Tamar is very wise. She said, you give me tokens. Give me your signet. Give me some, some things that you have on you now. Then when you pay me, I'll give these back to you. So someone came to him some months later and said, uh, your, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. She's pregnant. And this is what Judah says, burn her. Kill her. And so they bring Tamar out to kill her. But then she does something that changes the entire story. She said, you may burn me, but I want to show you the articles of the man who got me pregnant. And she pulls out Judah's signet ring and the things he had on him. And when Judah looked at those, he knew, I'm had. And this is what he said. You're more of a righteous person than I am. So now, in this pregnancy, she has twins. And the story goes like this. The, the first baby, because they would, if there were twins, they, they would mark the first baby because the first one has the birthright. I mean, that's where the lineage is going through, through the first one. And so the first one stuck out his arm through the birth canal and the, 
the uh, midwife tied a little red string on his hand, but all of a sudden he pulled it back and the other baby came right on out. And so that's where we get in this, this uh, lineage the name Perez. So look at verse 3 again. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, this, this actually gets um, a little more interesting. And I'm going to tell you why. And I've never researched this like I have, but I, I'm going to tell you that it's very interesting. The problem that Judah had was, number one, he didn't give his youngest son to Tamar. Then she does what she does, and she's pregnant by her father-in-law, and she has an illegitimate birth. So let me read to you out of Deuteronomy chapter 23, and this is verse 2. Now, this is before the law was given, but these laws somehow, you know, got uh, even in effect before the law because it was the custom. So in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 2, one of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. That's interesting, isn't it? So if, even if that was not the case, so when the descendants of Judah came along, we know that they kept genealogy and they knew that the descendants of Judah were by what? Illegitimate birth. And there can be no one who could come into the presence of the Lord's assembly until what? Ten generations. So if you'll go back and look at that verse and begin to count at Judah, and when you get to number 10, guess who shows up? David. So I got to researching this and I asked myself this question. Why is David so passionate about worship? Why is David so passionate? I want to build a house for the Lord. Could it be, question, could it be for 10 generations his family was not able to go into the assembly of the congregation to worship Almighty God. But then when he came along, he said, I'm the first one to be able to worship God with his people. That's worth the price of admission tonight. I want to tell you something. That that gets my heart. So if you ever question why David was so passionate about worship, I'm not saying that's the case. I'm just saying if you do a little investigation biblically, for 10 generations, if you started that illegitimate chain, until the 10th generation, you could not come into the assembly of the Lord. But oh, David, let me tell you, when it was his turn to go in, he didn't walk in, he burst the door down, didn't he? He was ready to worship. So, you, you see this genealogy as, as we go down through here, and, and it is very, very interesting. So let's end tonight. I, you, gosh, it's almost seven o'clock. Let's look at the two genealogies of Jesus. The first one is in Matthew chapter uh, one. And um, the, the other is uh, in... Uh, Luke chapter 3. So a couple of things that uh, I want to note before we get there is that 
when Matthew starts the genealogy in, in chapter one, do you see the two names he begins with before he starts the line? He is the son of David, and he is also the son of who? Abraham. So it's interesting that uh, he puts those two together. Now, if we follow these, these genealogies here, and, and it is interesting that, that we can do that, what, uh, I think what Matthew wants us to know is that he is of the right royalty, and he's of the right race. Look at the names, David and Abraham. So for Jesus to be king of the Jews, for him to be the Messiah, for him to be king of kings and lord of lords, he had to be of the right royalty or the right bloodline. He also had to be of the right race. So Abraham represents the race. David represents the royalty. Um, the two genealogies don't match. There's differences, especially when you get to David, it, it, it converges differently. So what's the answer of two genealogies? Because both of them tend to go back to, uh, to Joseph, but yet they're not the same. In Luke 3, it goes all the way back to God. It goes from uh, Jesus all the way back to God, right? To Adam, who was the son of God. But in Matthew's gospel, it starts and goes the other way. So I think what Matthew's doing, he is actually giving us a genealogy of royalty and not every descendant. So, so how do we bring these together? Okay, here, here's, here's the first answer. One of the genealogies we think is Joseph, the other ones is Mary's. Many have believed that, some have debated that, some don't believe that. So that's one of the, uh, one of the solutions. One of the genealogies is of Joseph, the other one is of Mary. Even though Joseph is not the father of Jesus, God is the father of Jesus, but he will be, quote, the earthly uh, one who would raise Jesus. And, and Joseph is never referred to as the father of Jesus. He's also always referred to as the husband of Mary, but not ever the father of Jesus. So when we look at Matthew's gospel, he, he brings us down to Joseph, but when we look at uh, Luke's uh, genealogy, it appears that he may be giving us Mary's genealogy. Now, when you get to David, everybody say David. When you get to David, the genealogy of David through royalty actually goes through Solomon. But if Mary's is the other genealogy, it goes through David's other son, which is Nathan. Not Nathan the prophet, but Nathan the son of David. So it would, it would be the royalty would come through Solomon, but the bloodline through Mary may come through uh, Nathan, the other uh, son of David, which means that both are descendants of David. E either way, from one son or the other, both Mary and Joseph are descendants of David. And some have concluded this, if that is the genealogy of Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, of all the people who would have a right to become a king of Israel, it would have been Joseph. Because he had the right bloodline of all the kings that we see in 
Israel. And so why would we see in Luke um, Joseph's name and not Mary's is because they very rarely, if ever, use the wife or the woman's name in a genealogy other than just the insertion as we see here. So Luke tells the story from possibly her perspective. And um, one of the things I think that is interesting in these genealogies is the king Jehoiakim. And and Jeremiah addresses this, excuse me, in chapter 36 and chapter 22. Now Jehoiakim is a very evil king. Matter of fact, he is one of the rulers when they go into Babylon and Babylonian captivity. And so when Jeremiah prophesies about Jehoiakim, and he is also referred to as other names, and uh, then his son Jeconiah comes along, and both of them are very wicked. And so this last king before the Babylonian captivity, uh, Jeremiah prophesies and says, it's as if he has no son. That there'll never be another son from this line that will ever sit on the throne of Israel. So, so how do you rectify that? So if, if Jesus is in this bloodline and he's going to be the king, then how do you rectify this? And there's only one way you can rectify it. That Joseph is not his father. That God is his father. So the blood did not come from a natural mortal man the Holy Spirit planted the seed in Mary. And so that bloodline did not just come through a natural father. The bloodline did come to Mary, but the fatherhood, the Holy Spirit moved upon Mary. And that's the only solution you have because God cursed that line. But how many glad Jesus redeemed that line? And now he is the king. So Matthew does follow Joseph's side, and um, th- the problem is that we, we can say that, yes, Joseph is a direct descendant of David, and he is the earthly one who's going to re- rear Jesus, but he is not the father. So if one genealogy is royal and the other one is legal, then we would have two different genealogies. Now, the, the solution to one, like I said, Luke gives us the physical or actual genealogy. Matthew gives us the official Davidic line of the kings and not the actual ancestors. Now, another problem is when you look at this, both end up with Joseph. And another solution may be, and I'm not saying it's the solution of the answer, but it could be, and some have said this, that Joseph had two fathers, And you say, well, how in the world can a person have two fathers? It's impossible. Well, according to the law, it's really not impossible. And I'll tell you why. Because we just discussed it. Uh, First of all, if Mary had no brothers, if Mary had no brothers, and then she later marries Joseph, it was a custom at that time that that one who had no brothers, when that son-in-law came into the family, he was actually called a son because there was no other brothers of Mary. So they would take Joseph as a son. The other might have been that Joseph's first father, natural father, died. 
And if he had a brother, he did the same thing that we talked about, the custom was, the law was, if you have a brother that dies, then the other brother marries that woman to produce the seed. So if both refer to Joseph, then both have different father's names for Joseph's father. And that's the only way you can rectify that. And I'm not saying that happened, but it's a possibility. Now, there's a name for that, and it's called the Leverite Law. And it sounds almost like Levite, doesn't it? But the Leverite marriage is described in Deuteronomy 25. If a wife uh, is, is left as a widow, then the other brother comes in there and takes that widow and raises up seed to, uh, to that bloodline. In other words, the law states the brother should uh, marry his brother's widow and produce heirs for him and really for her. So in this case, uh, Heli, and some has said that's Eli, Joseph's father, according to Luke, and then according to Matthew, it's another name. So could one been the natural father of Joseph and the other one been the father that raised up the seed through the widow? We don't know, but th that would you know, explain that. But at any rate, these are amazing, amazing things. So you know, when you, you walk outside the uh, auditorium tonight and you see the nativity scene, then most people just say, well, you know, that's a very simple story. Well, it's very simple, but it's very complex at the same time. And the amazing thing is a lot of Christians really don't have a lot of background of all the things that happen. So when Matthew is telling us that when Jesus is born, he is the king, and then the Magi come along and they verify he's the king, and they fulfill, they fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3 and verse 6. Then all of a sudden, Micah comes along and Micah prophesies that there's going to be the region of the, the tower, the Migdal Adar, where the sheep are born. And this is the re region they're raising the lambs for the Passover and the lambs for sacrifice. And these are not your normal shepherds. These are not your everyday lambs. These are the lambs that are going to be sacrificed as Passover lambs. And where else better for Jesus to be born than in the same area where the lambs are born because he's the Lamb of God, right? And this tower that oversees the, the shepherding fields where the baby lambs are born is the same place in the region where, where Rachel dies. It's the same area they're killing the babies and Rachel is weeping for her children. The region of Bethlehem, house of bread, and Jesus is the true bread that came down from heaven. And it was said through tradition and custom that when those lambs began to hit the ground, they were birthed, that they would set a fire in the top of that uh, towering flock, if you will, to let everyone know in Jerusalem that the lambs are being born. We said last time God went up that, right? He didn't put a fire in the top of the tower. He put a light in the sky to say the lamb's being born. So all these things converge together. And so when you see the convergence of all these prophecies, Bethlehem, we're going to have to go to Egypt. Why did Joseph take baby Jesus to Egypt? Because Herod is killing all of the babies. How in the world could they sustain themselves in Egypt for a period of time until this blew over? Because the Magi brought them gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. How many of you know God is a provider? He's a provider. 
And he's going to have his will. He's going to have his way. And he's going to fulfill his word to the T. And so why didn't they go back to the, the area where Jesus was born? Because it was safer to go back to Nazareth. So he should be called a Nazarene. So all these, all these prophecies, one is being fulfilled, another one is being fulfilled, and another one is being fulfilled. The odds of anyone fulfilling these prophecies are almost impossible. And even if you were trying to fulfill the prophecies, as a baby, you would have no control. You can't control who your parents are. You can't control their lineage and their bloodline. You can't control where you were born. You can't control when the census was being taken. You can't control Herod killing the children and having to flee to Egypt. Now, why was this happening? To fulfill biblical prophecy. You know, in the Old Testament, God called his people out of Egypt. And I think it's very early in this story of bondage, God calls Israel his son, and he says, I'm calling my son out of Egypt in a typical typology way of bringing a whole nation out of Egypt. And then he takes his son back to Egypt and he calls him out of Egypt again. See, all these things are very interesting. And when you look at it and you get this panoramic view, this broad view of what God is doing and, and, and the fulfilling of prophecy, it lets you know and it lets me know. We're not just going through this story because we're religious. We're not going through this because it's a good story. We're not living this out. We're not worshiping Jesus because it's just something that we do. We're doing this because this is fulfillment of the ages. This is Emmanuel, God with us. And let me end with this thought. What in the world is God doing coming in human flesh like he did in Bethlehem. Because God appeared before, right? I mean, he's in the Shekinah of the Old Testament. He, he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening in Eden. He shows up at the tent of Abraham. But yet when he comes to interdict and become the savior of the world, he has to do it legitimately. Because in the beginning of our time, he said, let man have what? Dominion over the earth. So if God is going to do something as far as salvation, he has to keep his own word and not break his law. So the only legitimate way to come into our world to do what he did was to come through the womb of a woman. Because he said, let man have dominion. So he had to come as a man. Here's the second thing. If man broke his law, don't eat of the tree. If you do, you'll surely die. And if you die, you're going to be cursed. And not only will you eventually die physically, but you'll die eternally. So if a man broke the law, a man had to fulfill the payment of that sin. So that's two reasons that God tabernacled in human flesh and the Son of God came as fully God and fully man. 
And that's why Paul writes to Timothy, he said, there is one mediator between God and man. It's the man, Christ Jesus. He had to come as a man. Man sinned. Man had to pay the penalty for sin. And all the penalty for your sin and my sin was paid through Jesus Christ. And not only is that prophetically being fulfilled in this story, but all of the other things that Jesus will do is being fulfilled in his life. And so when we close out the book of Revelation, and it says he is king of kings and lord of lords, and we read in the Bible that David will have an heir set on the throne forever, then how's that ever going to be fulfilled? And I look at it, the prophets looked at it as we began, and they say, I'm not for sure how this is going to happen. How's it going to be the lamb and the lion? How's it going to reign forever and yet die? How's it going to be one born in Bethlehem but come out of Egypt and then be a Nazarene? I don't know. But guess what? He did it. And he did it marvelously. And so that when we come to the story of Christmas, and this next week when you celebrate Christmas. This is the beginning of the week. Beginning of next week is the Christmas week. This is what I want you to do. I want you to enjoy your family. I want you to enjoy the food. I will do both. But I want you to also see this in a whole new light. There's no way this could happen unless God made it happen. There's no way that, that we could enjoy this season like we enjoy it without God making this happen. So I want you to look at it in a whole nother way. When we met uh, a few weeks ago and we said we're going to do a series called Unlocking Christmas, we wanted to do something a little bit different. And, and I realize some people, they, they really don't care about what we're talking about tonight. Hey, it's Christmas. But you know what? The deeper you get into it, the more you appreciate it. The more you understand it, the more it unlocks the value of our time to celebrate the birth of Jesus. If you were here last week, was he born on December the 25th? Probably not. But it didn't make any difference if the 26th, 27th, or in April. He's still the Lord. And he was born. We celebrate it. And it's worth celebrating. Vicki shared with me this morning, she said, I went back and listened to the podcast of last week. She said, something that you said to me really resonated. She said, you made this statement, even though people don't understand why they're worshiping, why they're celebrating, why they're singing the songs, at least they're singing our songs. At least they got some kind of thought, some element, some notion Something happened on Christmas. And that was the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Stand with me tonight. We are so thankful you joined us today. We would love to hear from you at rayofhopepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know how you are encouraged and how we can pray for you. Remember, Christ in you is the hope of glory and hope changes everything.